Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. Good morning. Welcome to Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken recently, in a speech on U.S.-China policy, called Beijing the most serious long-term challenge to the international order. In response, Chinese State Councillor and Foreign Minister Wang Yi, who was visiting Pacific Island countries at the time, said the U.S. has serious misconceptions in its views about the world. And Chinese President Xi Jinping said whether the two countries can handle their relationship well will bear on the future of the world. My guest today studies market structure. He's a geopolitical finance expert and examines Sino-U.S. relations through the lens of financial markets in his book, Financial Cold War. It's a book informed by a perspective gleaned from working at the intersection of international finance and the Chinese economy. So how does Sino-U.S. rivalry today threaten the world's financial system? Let's find out with author of Financial Cold War, James Falk. Good morning, James. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you for joining us. Please tell us how the Financial Cold War, your title references, is different from what we generally consider a Cold War. Well, look, I mean, the Financial Cold War, when most people hear that phrase, they immediately jump to trade wars, sanctions and so forth. That, in my book, is already the financial hot war. The financial cold war is all of the individual financial policies and the structure of the global financial system that have contributed to tensions and conflicts between China and the United States. I think the cold war, new cold war reference, in many ways, Mm -hmm. is a wrong lens to look at this conflict through. Mm -hmm. Can you share with us some examples to illustrate that? If you look at the Cold War in the 20th century, the reality was there was no commercial or trade or financial relationship to speak of whatsoever between the United States and the Soviet Union. So they had little to lose from the policy which largely characterized the Cold War, which was disengagement. If you look at China and the U.S. today, I mean, they are deeply intertwined through trade and increasingly through financial markets. And so any attempt to decouple or disengage would only make the two countries the poorer and ultimately, I believe, exacerbate the tensions and conflicts that you're already seeing between them. I want to pick up on that theme of exacerbating the tensions. What are some of the aspects of the global financial system, shortcomings perhaps, that are fanning the flames of conflict between China and the U.S.? Well, in short, my book explains that the reality is the main factor driving tensions and conflicts today is really the rise of wealth and income disparity in both countries. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the failure to deal with the root causes of these and leaders' decision to choose the path of nationalist populism as an alternative to dealing with the root causes of the problem has really created and exacerbated the tensions that we're seeing. All right, there's a chapter in your book that talks about the U.S. dollar and how it came to take over the world. Is the U.S. dollar still, you know, the bedrock of the world's financial system? And what implications does that have for conflict between the U.S. and China? 
Oh, without a doubt, the, the U.S. dollar is the bedrock of the financial system. I mean, it is the common unit, or you can think of it as the common language through which international commerce and investment take place. But the reality is that that system requires the U.S. ultimately to continually export dollars. And as the U.S. has been growing at a slower rate than many other countries, it's required it to go into higher and higher levels of debt. And ultimately, what this has led to is a greater level of fragility in the U.S. financial system. And because of the U.S. financial system's centrality to the global financial system, it has made the global financial system much more fragile and therefore prone to the recurrence of the types of financial crisis that we've been seeing at an increasing rate over the recent decades. One of the most interesting sections of the book, Financial Cold War, is a section that deals with cryptocurrency. And you write that in the future, cryptocurrency could actually challenge the dollar's global dominance. Given the route that we've seen recently, do you still hold that view? Well, what I say in my book is actually not necessarily that cryptocurrencies will replace national fiat currencies, but the technology that underlies them could change the game significantly. If you think about it, the dollar system is supported by global financial infrastructures of depositories of payment networks such as SWIFT and so forth that give the United States a huge amount of power in the global financial system, which it's been increasingly weaponizing against its strategic rival. But the technological shift that is accompanied by digital currencies, and that may take the form of cryptocurrencies, it may take the form of stable coins, or it may take the form of central bank digital currencies, will be accompanied by a huge shift in the architecture and financial plumbing that underpin the global financial system. And ultimately, a huge amount of power will be transferred to the parties that control that new infrastructure. So we know that China is really focused on maintaining control and overseeing data. Is the U.S. losing the race in terms of digital currency vis-a-vis China? I do find the U.S. position quite perplexing because they seem to be trying actively to hold back their own development of a central bank digital currency. I mean, I read in the newspaper just about a week ago that the banking lobby is heavily working against the creation of a dollar-based central bank digital currency. I look at that as akin to China's walking away from maritime technology in the early 1400s. The reality is that if you fail to invest in your technological infrastructure and move with the times on these technological advancements, there is a huge risk that you get left behind. Speaking of lessons from history, your book's been described as a tour de force and you take readers back centuries to explain how we got to where we are today. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, why you decided to include so much of the history in order to tell you the story that you wanted in this book? I spent 10 years of my life essentially working at the heart of China's financial markets opening to the world. And through that, had the good fortune of dealing with financial policymakers 
and regulators around the world, in mainland China, in Hong Kong, in the United States and elsewhere. And what I realized was that many of the people making the key decisions did not necessarily fully appreciate where the other parties were coming from. And that led to a huge amount of, let's call it, mistrust, a little bit of paranoia in their treatment of each other. And I believe that without that understanding of where each party at the table is coming from, we're at risk of catastrophic mistakes in the types of policies that are implemented and ultimately an exacerbation of the mistrust intentions that we've been seeing. And so I thought that it was really important to explain both where U.S. policymakers were coming from, how their system had come about. And it was really important, particularly in the United States, for people to have more of an appreciation of where Chinese leaders have come from and the constraints within which they operate when advancing their financial policies. What are the biggest financial challenges facing the U.S. today and perhaps also facing China? I think, you know, from the perspective of the Chinese, the biggest pressure that they face is the very rapid aging of the population, which is happening at three times the rate of the aging of Western and Japanese populations. That's going to completely undermine the Chinese economic model that it has used to such great effect to grow out of poverty over the last 40 years to the second largest economy in the world. But equally, they're also facing significant challenges in that the centralized system that they operate has relied very heavily on top-down investment-led growth. And particularly as the, the population is aging, you can't just continue pouring concrete as a means of driving GDP growth. Ultimately, that will lead to massive capital misallocation, as we've seen in certain sectors, the accumulation of debts that will create huge hangovers for subsequent generations. Those are big problems. We've also seen social problems in China around the growing wealth and income disparities accompanied that growth. And now, more recently, the Chinese economy, because of its dependence on the U.S. dollar for its financial interaction with the rest of the world, this growing geopolitical tension with the U.S. is presenting very big headaches for Chinese policymakers. In the United States, factors are not massively dissimilar. The reality is the United States as a society is being undermined by massively growing wealth and income disparities. And that has in part been driven by the structure of the financial system, which relies on the U.S. dollar. If you think about the consequences of the U.S. dollar system, Mm -hmm. it's ultimately meant a structurally overvalued U.S. dollar. So for some people in the U.S., that's been great because you've outsourced production and you've been able to lower costs, grow profit margins. And those people have experienced huge increases in wealth through the growth in share prices. But for a very large segment of the U.S. population, that's meant for manufacturing workers in particular, 40 years of displacement, job loss, or at best, 
long-term wage stagnation. And that ultimately is coming back in terms of the types of politics that you're seeing in the U.S. And it's really quite fractious and partisan politics that you see in Washington. And so that's a big problem. And the fact is that it's very difficult in a globalized world where all countries are competing for investment to fully address all of these things through fiscal means, even if there is the political will. Because if you think about it, if you raise taxes on your population, it's really easy to move capital at the touch of a button. And so places with lower rates of taxation on capital will just see a flood of money coming towards them if you try and do that. And so really the answer for both China and the United States is that in many areas of financial policy, there is going to have to be significant coordination and cooperation between them and other countries around the world in order to lessen the types of tension that you see. How hopeful are you that we're moving in that direction, given what we're seeing today? I have to say that, you know, particularly in the wake of the tragedy that's unfolding in Ukraine, mm. the problems are getting more difficult by the day. Mm. The reality is the U.S. has gone through massive monetary and fiscal stimulus as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And other countries have done as well. The U.S. dollar has been through multiple what you might call tipping points that might have led to its demise. And typically fiat currency systems don't tend to last forever. Inevitably, they will go away at some point. And the major problem is that you know the unprecedented financial sanctions that have been placed on Russia, I think morally entirely justified, you know, also run huge risks because you think about countries across Asia and Latin America been selling their commodities, they've been selling their labor to the rich developed West, largely in return for dollars. Mm. And they've accumulated big piles of savings. If they lose confidence in their ability to access those savings in the event of a rainy day or if they happen to get onto the wrong side of the U.S., mm. then are they still going to be willing to sell their labor, their commodities, their goods to the rich developed West? And if they are not, then what will that mean for inflation in Western Europe, in the United States? And what will that mean for social stability in those countries? We've opened a huge Pandora's box now. And I feel that we're now running in uncharted waters and the risks are extremely high. The fact is that also China at the moment is also facing an economic downturn yes. of proportions that have not been experienced in decades. And in view of the social bargain or social contract between the government and its people, mm. the stresses that that will create on the system and society create enormous risks both domestically and because of China's deep integration into the rest of the world now, 
economically will have huge repercussions for other places. And will that decline in the social contract coupled with China's ageing population, do you think that is diminishing its chance of global economic hegemony, which seems to be at the heart of the distrust as well between the US and China? It's very, very difficult to predict because there's so many moving pieces, not least massive shifts in technology. Ultimately, you're looking through all of this, markets will rise and fall, but Mm. what you're really looking for is increases in general economic productivity, which drive enhancements in people's standards of living. And so the information age that was largely driven by the United States that we've been benefiting from over the last 20 years has created enormous improvements in, in our lifestyles in some respects. And it is still possible that through technological innovation and the harnessing of that, we will see unpredictable or unexpected outcomes. But at this point in time, both countries are so distracted with the many problems that they both have to deal with. It's very difficult to tell where that ends up. So technology is one pillar. James, what are some of the steps that policymakers need to be able to take to alleviate the frictions between US and China? Well, in sum, the main point that I make in my book is that the fruits of economic growth and prosperity need to be better distributed. Because if they are not, we have seen time and again over history that this leads to major conflicts and perhaps even wars. And so the most, that is the most important thing. How that is achieved mm. ultimately can take many different forms. I think certainly the U.S. dollar-based global monetary system has now passed or outlived its usefulness even for the United States itself and needs to undergo significant reform. In fact, the Chinese have proposed certain options, particularly if you remember in 2009, in the wake of the global financial crisis, former PBOC Governor Zhou Xiaotuan pushed for the IMF's special drawing rights, a neutral international unit to serve in a greater role as a global reserve currency. I think that would be a good option for both sides because ultimately it removes the ability of any one country to abuse its dominance over the global financial system and infrastructure supporting it to attack strategic rivals. But, I mean, ultimately, there's so many things that need to be done, whether it's in terms of global fiscal coordination to correct some of the hugely unequal and unfair tax systems that have been allowed to crop up where the very rich have been paying far lower rates of taxation than ordinary middle-class workers. So all of these things need to be looked at, but in today's world will be very difficult to achieve without all parties coming together and cooperating in some way to achieve those outcomes. 
or have to pick up your book to dive into that invisible conflict in terms of distribution of wealth. James Fox, such a privilege to speak with you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. James Falk is the author of the book we're reading today, Financial Cold War. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.